Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. My name is Kami Akavan. I'm the executive director of the USC Dornstive Center for the Political Future. Bob Shrum was going to be your moderator this evening. However, two days ago during physical therapy that Bob was doing post-surgery, he threw out his back and he can barely walk. So, uh, Bob, I know you're listening and I know you're watching. So uh, get well, my friend. Uh, For tonight, uh, you got me. And I want you to know that this is the first of many discussions that we're going to be hosting around the 2024 election. This event is also going to be available on YouTube and on our podcast, The Bully Pulpit. Today, we have two extraordinary guests for whom we are privileged to have also as fellows here at the Center for the Political Future. I'll introduce them briefly. Adisu Demisi has led campaigns at the national, state, and local levels, including the campaign for U.S. Senator Cory Booker and California Governor Gavin Newsom. He was a senior advisor to Joe Biden in 2020, coordinating that year's Democratic National Convention. Brent Priebus is former six-year chairman of the Republican National Committee, who finished as the winningest chairman of either political party. He was also the first White House chief of staff for former President Donald Trump. I'm going to ask the gentleman a few questions to get us started, and then I'm going to invite you, our in-person audience, to ask questions as well. First question is, is Donald Trump an overwhelming favorite for the Republican nominee, and do other candidates like Nikki Haley have any legitimate chance? Well, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is overwhelming favorite. It's obvious by many, many points. I think that the odds of beating Donald Trump in the Republican primary are very, very difficult to see how someone is going to overtake him. I'm not saying it's impossible, but if you look at the polling and you look at the trends, things don't look good for folks that are running you know, against them. Um, as far as whether or not another candidate is, is likely to win, the difference between 2016 and 2020 is pretty simple. In 2016, Donald Trump rarely polled above 35% in any primary, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, or otherwise, given even in a 10-person field. In 2023, today, Donald Trump is at 53% against the field. And that's the big difference. Now, here's the second thing, which is getting us in the weeds, and only for a second. In the Republican Party, Delegates choose the nominee, same as the DNC. The delegates choose the nominee, not the voters, the delegates. The delegates in the Republican Party are mainly given through a winner-take-all basis. So even if you win 35% and the next person's at 34%, you get all the delegates. So Trump's at 53. So it tells you where this is going. I am not saying for the record (laughs) that Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie, that's impossible. But as we sit here today, it would be ridiculous 
for me to conclude that Donald Trump was not the overwhelming favorite for the Republican nomination. Agreed. Uh, he is the expert on this. The winner take all thing is really important. Democrats do not do that in our primary system. Delegates still do elect the ultimately the nominee, but we do a proportional system. So if you got if two candidates get 33 percent ish of the vote, they'll both get a third ish of the delegates. And that is a very different situation than the Republican Party. I guess the only thing I would add is and I couldn't agree more. I would I would put money on it. I would. I think that it's going to happen, uh, that Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. I think the only way it doesn't happen is if two things happen. One is something materially affects Donald Trump's favorability ratings with Republican voters between now and February. If it happens too late, and that includes the indictments and anything happening in his criminal cases, that doesn't seem to affect him. So maybe not that. But if something doesn't materially change before February, these primaries are going to come fast and furious. March 5th is Super Tuesday. And once we've passed through March 5th, we are the writing is on the wall. The second thing is, it's got to be a one-on-one race. The anti-Trump vote to the extent it exists, and it doesn't really, somewhere between 50 and 60% of the, of the Republican voters seem to be with Trump. So even a consolidation of the anti-Trump vote doesn't get you a single delegate today. But it definitely isn't going to happen if you have seven, eight candidates on the other side, and it needs to happen again quickly so that one candidate could compete against Trump in these contests that have a lot of delegates at, at stake on Super Tuesday and, and beyond into March and April. But clear as day, he's the favorite, overwhelming favorite. I assume he will be the nominee, and I would be truly shocked if he were not, like, truly shocked. <laughs> well, thank you for those answers. So it looks like on the Republican side, the next election will have the last frontrunner. Trump is going to be the nominee again, most likely. On the Democratic side, it looks like the nominee from 2020 will also be the nominee yet again. So my second question is, let's take a look at the Democrats. Did Joe Biden make the right choice when he decided to run again? He now is a primary challenger in Dean Phillips. Is Biden the strongest Democratic candidate in the field? Yes. And, uh, yeah, this is this is my area of expertise. The answer to that is yes. Do I think that he has challenges? Absolutely. Do I think the election is today? Last time I checked, the answer is no. We have a year and six days until there's an election. And the challenge that I think that President Biden has right now is he's running against himself. As long as Donald Trump is not the actual nominee, as long as the Democratic and Republican primaries haven't actually happened yet, there's still a belief out there that I think is misguided that there might be a different nominee. There might be Trump might not win. Biden might not run. Ultimately, come talk to me in four or five months. It's going to be Biden against Trump. And I do think Biden is the strongest nominee for a number of reasons. One is, I think once he is the nominee, and maybe more importantly, once Trump is the nominee on the other side, you're going to see reconsolidation of both parties. We saw it in we basically see it in every presidential election, as long as I've been paying attention, that people retrench to their partisan quarters once there's a clear choice in front of them. Right now, that choice is a little bit muddled. Might Dean Phillips get in? Might your favorite Democratic candidate X decide at the last second to get in? Might Biden not decide not to run? But once that is kind of behind us, I think Biden's strength will show itself. And Biden's strength, in my opinion, has to do with why he won in 2020 and why I think, you know, obviously I'm biased on this. I think he's been a good president. He has a resilient brand. He's well-known and a resilient brand, not just among Democrats, but actually among the exact swing voter set that Democrats need to win over to actually get to 270 electoral votes, which is essentially non-college white voters and some suburban white voters in certain areas. Those folks, like Joe Biden, they might not be totally happy with 
you know, what's going on in the country right now. But fundamentally, they think he's a good guy trying to do the right thing. And one thing we know for sure is they do not like Donald Trump. And they're the reason why he's the president right now. So I think that will manifest itself once we're past this primary period and we have the actual choice laid out in front of us, uh, which is the same choice we had in 2020. Well, not you probably disagree. Not surprising <laughs> they have a complete opposite view. I think Joe Biden is the absolute worst possible candidate that the Democrats could put up. And I'll tell you what. Democrats are freaking out because there's nothing they hate more than Donald Trump. And they're looking at these polls and they can't believe it that Donald Trump is beating Joe Biden by 10 points in this country. He's beating Joe Biden in Wisconsin. He's beating him in Ohio. He's beating him in Pennsylvania. He's right about something very important, which I'll concede that that's where it is today. And he's right about the fact that This isn't uncommon that parties get into this freak out mode right now and then they consolidate and it's like, okay, it's us or them and there is a consolidation. This is true. But the Democrats think that Trump is the ultimate threat to the universe and they are putting themselves in a position to put on the ballot a guy that's doing 20 points worse today on overall approval than where he was in 2020. The 70% of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to be their nominee. This morning, a CNN poll, and the, the, the black vote is a very important part of the Democrat base. In 2020, granted, it was in October, and I, a smart person would say it's galvanized then, so it's going to be higher. 86% of black voters had a positive view of Joe Biden. Today, it's 63%. In 2020, in a Biden versus Trump matchup, black voters went to Biden plus 75 points. Today, it's plus 54. Suburban women. Trump is up 20 points of where he was in 2020. But on top of it, Joe Biden brought in 2020 his message of a fresh, decent, kind of cut the nonsense kind of guy has been lost because we've got chaos at home. We got a border out of control. We have crime out of control. We have an economy that's not doing well for people out in the suburbs either. People aren't better off today than they were four years ago. And guess what? We got a world that right now, honest to God, is terrifying. If you're not terrified of what's going on in the world in Ukraine and the Middle East, and you got China that's teaming up with Russia and they're teaming up with Iran, this isn't like a joke. This is not... There's one thing to talk politics and, and we, we can kind of nick and knack and be entertaining, but the world is getting terrifying. Okay. And the electorate is going to come down to a hundred thousand people. We don't have a presidential election for the whole country here in the United States. We have an election that will take place in six states and a hundred thousand people in six states will decide who the president of the United States is. And each party, his party, my party, know everything about those 100,000 people. <laughs> they know what beer they drink, what car they drive, how many kids they have, whether their mortgage is paid, whether their mortgage is upside down or not. 
and they are going to target these 100,000 people with about $7 billion, and they're going to put about 100,000 volunteers on these people and paid people, and it's all going to come down to a little nick and a little knack. And if I'm Joe Biden or I'm the head of the Democrat National Committee, and I hated nothing more than Donald Trump, I would be curled up in a ball right now (laughs) in my house, shivering in fear, because this situation that they're in is their own making. I somehow made sorry for I somehow made it out this morning. I mean, I I obviously have a lot to quibble with there, but the only thing I would say is then you have to choose Donald Trump (laughs) as as the as the as the solution. But you don't. You're gonna clear West. You could show him. Here's the other problem. You got one Joe Biden, excuse me, you got one Donald Trump. And what the Democrats are doing is they're going to put up Joe Biden, but then they're going to give you a couple other no, no, I'm a no Trumper of choices too. They're going to give you a no Trumper in Cornell West. They're going to give you a no Trumper in the no labels. They might even give you a no Trumper in Robert Kennedy Jr. So the Democrats are just splitting up the I hate Trump. Hey, I have, just to be clear, I completely agree with this. I'm sure this is going to be one of your questions too, that I do think the third party candidates are a particular danger to Biden, because I agree that you have an anti-Trump vote in this country, and probably even amongst those 100,000 people, that is larger than the pro-Trump vote. But if those people are divided, you know, maybe it's 51-49, so you got, you know, then you're at 51,000 versus 49,000 people. And we need at least 49,000 and one of those people to vote for Joe Biden. I'm trying to do the math in my head real quick, right? And so if a Cornell West or a Robert Kennedy or a no-labels candidate can peel off two, 3,000 of those folks, that's 2 or 3%. Suddenly, we're in a whole different world. So I do think the biggest threat in some ways to Biden is what happened in 2016 with Jill Stein and and exactly. the party is if a, if a big enough anti-Trump and anti-Biden vote goes somewhere else, they could deliver us Trump. I totally agree with that. Um, oh, sorry. Well, so let me ask then a question about that 100,000. So one of these key battleground states is Michigan. So let me ask one of these a question about Michigan, and that is Michigan has a large Arab American community. And what we are hearing is that many of them will not vote for Joe Biden because of his support for Israel after the Hamas terrorist attacks. Americans are obviously an important voting bloc in this very critical battleground state. And how likely is it that they will not support Biden and throw Michigan to Trump? I wish I knew the answer to that. I don't. I will say a couple things. One is, this is Muslim man Donald Trump we're talking about, the guy who was president. Again, is this a choice or a referendum, right? And I think ultimately a lot of our debate is going to be about this. If this election is a referendum on Joe Biden and only Joe Biden, then yeah, I think we're in more trouble than if this is a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, because I feel like we have a strong argument to make about what Joe Biden has done and tried to do. We also have an equally strong argument about what a Trump presidency could mean, because we all lived through it from 2017 to 2021. No offense to my present company. And so... This is going to be the tension, I think, of the next, this whole year is going to be, is this election all about Joe Biden or is it about Joe Biden versus the alternative? And Joe, President Biden says this all the time. He's like, compare me, you can either compare me to the almighty or to the alternative. Mm-hmm. And our side is going to make sure for the next 372 days that this is a choice election about Joe Biden and the leadership he's provided versus the leadership that Donald Trump would provide if he were president, assuming he's the nominee, which I know I can't do. I'll make that assumption here. Uh, but to answer your question specifically, I do think that's a problem. I think that's a problem today. Will that still be a problem one year from today? I do not know. Um, does that mean some of those folks might just stay home? Some of those folks might vote for a third party candidate. Some might, you know, come back. They're not also 
every American, Muslim American in Michigan is not necessarily a Joe Biden voter either, right? So how does that affect the margin? I don't know, but it certainly can be a problem if, uh, uh, and it would be a problem if the election were today. It's not. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I don't know what the statistics are, where that comes from. So I don't assume it to be true or not true. I just think that there is so much that could possibly go on in the Middle East between now and election day that no one in their right mind could possibly predict where anyone's going to be on that particular issue. So, um, but what is true is, look, it. 2020, in spite of the country knowing everything they knew, Donald Trump, first, let me just back up. Donald Trump in 2016 represented the biggest middle finger that the American people could find. They were tired of it, sick of the lies, sick, you know, every, and, and a lot of people are. You know, that's true. And in spite of all that, in 2020, in spite of all the investigations, in spite of all the Russia stuff and being subpoenaed and, you know, um, listen, I, I was, I, I, I was interviewed for over 35 hours in the Mueller investigation. And they were saying that, that Trump was coordinating with the Russians. Trump couldn't, was hardly coordinating with the RNC, let alone the Russians. I mean, other than putting Russian salad dressing on our salad. There was no, we didn't know any Russians, I promise you. Uh, we're just fighting to make it through the next accusation during the campaign. Okay. So the point is, in spite of it all, Trump lost in the battleground states on 270 electoral votes by 86,000 votes. So, yes, Biden won by many millions on the popular vote. But in the battleground states that matter is 86,000. Now, the question for you is, the world's changed in the three years. What do those 86,000 people that aren't at events like this tonight, that aren't thinking about every little problem and every little offense, you know, that Donald Trump may or may not tweet about, what do they think about this world? What do they think about this economy? What do they think about what's happening at the border? What's happening in crime? We go into CVS now and everything's locked up, you know, Part of all of the, the me- part of the message here is that protecting the American worker and bringing our troops home, this, that we're, you know, in ending these ridiculous wars is all, and confronting China was ripping off the world. Those are very basic tenets that in the Midwest, 80% of the people agree with that. And that's why it's not that easy to just knock this stuff off as ridiculous and silly and nonsense. And that's Trump stuff because it resonates and it resonates with a lot of people. You brought up a lot of good points about anger and issues that are motivating voters. And I kind of want to get to some of those points about some of these key voting blocks. So I wanted to ask about those critical voting groups that made a big difference for President Biden in 2020. I'm thinking about young people, people of color and suburban voters. If the choice comes down to Biden and Trump, and it is a choice election, are they likely to repeat the voting patterns that send Biden to the White House in 2020? Or do you think they'll be shopping elsewhere? I don't think they're likely to exactly repeat what happened in 2020. I think it was a, to your point, or some, I think it was your point from earlier, 
Trump was president. Biden was a challenger. It was, you know, he was the change uh, that folks sought. We were in the midst of a global pandemic. I mean, every, you know, every election is contextual. And it's the maybe the most important thing to understand about the business that we're in is that there is no playbook for any election because something can happen at the last second that completely changes the, the calculus of things. It's happened, frankly, in the last few elections. You had the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008. You had the uh, Comey letter and all that stuff. That, and, and not to mention the Access Hollywood tape that came out in October of 2016. You had uh, Trump got COVID in 2020. You, uh, COVID happened in 2020 and Trump got COVID at the end of the election. So, so many of these things are, are going to change. So I have no, I don't know. Here's what I think the trends show. I think the Democrats are getting more of a hold on suburban voters today than we did four years ago. Mm. I think the thing that scares me and that Ryan's, I think, is properly identified is the economy is the problem, which is fair, right? Prices are higher, et cetera. I think President Biden and one of our challenges on the campaign side is going to be to, as I said earlier, demonstrate to people that the president has tried and in some cases succeeded in making life easier for people, even as they may. It's tough out there, right? We had the exact same problem 12 years ago with President Obama in the wake of the Great Recession, like exactly the same. And if you would, if we had had this exact panel 12 years ago when President Obama was, you know, sitting in the White House, I guarantee you the exact same questions. Are people going to show up again? Are people just, you know, President, we got creamed in the 2010 midterms worse than President Biden did. I say all that to say we have a case to make, I think, and we're going to have to make it to these exact people. But I think suburban voters are even more sick of Trump now than they were before. I think they are more likely to identify for many reasons, social reasons, abortion rights issues that have come out over the last couple of years with Democrats. I think our challenge, if we have any, is with young folks and with people of color, particularly young people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think though people, Gen Z, you know, people probably under 20, under 30, let's call it, certainly under 25, some of them are in this room, do not identify with the, either party, are generally speaking independents, do not have the historical affinity with the Democratic Party, and Joe Biden is 80 years old. And you put all those things together, and we have to remake the case. And some of those people are first-time voters. You know, they turned 18 since since 2020. So we're going to have to make the case to them anew. I think it's going to be in some ways harder to do that than it is going to be to keep the voters that President Biden won in 2020 and took away from Trump in 2020. Well, let me ask then about being the issues that are animating those voters, what issues do you think will determine their voting behavior? Do you see any of those of the abortion rights getting Republicans to show up or not show up? Do you see those suburban voters, young voters, voters of color? Do you think what issues do you see as motivating them to show up on the GOP side? Well, certainly the economy, inflation. Uh, whether people have more money in their pocket today than they did four years ago, whether they feel they're better off today than they were four years ago, whether parents feel like they've got their future lined up for their kids better today than they did four years ago. That's number one. Number two, crime. People in the suburbs are worried about crime. People in the cities are worried about crime and safety. If you can't provide a safe environment for your family and you can't afford to go to the grocery store the way you used to for your family and you're not exhausted because you're working one or, you know, two jobs, three jobs, all of this, I can't deal with the Trump tweet stuff. This doesn't matter. What matters is survival, but to do it with dignity. I mean, we're in a great country. We, we're, most people aren't working on just surviving, but it's doing it with dignity. 
to have a retirement, to give, you put your kids in school. And the other thing is the border. The border is out of control, leading to things like fentanyl problems for kids in the suburbs. And parents are, are nervous, as you can imagine, about that. And the last thing is what's going on in the schools. Moms in the suburbs are sick and tired of it. They're sick and tired of the schools telling parents to sit down, shut up. We know what's better for your kids. We're going to teach them what we're going to teach them. You're not going to have a say in it. And I know like in a, in, you know, in, in this environment, okay, it's a, here we are ranting and raving about the schools, but moms are not happy about what's happening in the schools either. The last thing we already talked about it, but it's the big, question mark, which is what's happening in the world. And we don't know what's happening in the world. We don't know where this is going to go. Iran, China, and Taiwan, the Middle East, it is a very delicate situation, and neither of us can possibly predict what happens. It could happen that Joe Biden handles it perfectly, and things work out, and people are relieved, and that could change the situation. So. All those things are the things that I think drive the electorate and um, and knowing how to communicate to those 100,000 people about those issues to motivate them to go to the polls um, is is how, how this is won and lost. Yeah, I appreciate that answer because it speaks to the next question. It's very related, which is about sort of the messaging that these parties are going to use to drive voters to the polls. So for the... Democrats, can they run on Trump's threat to democracy? Is that the the message that Trump is a danger? We must stop him. That's your motivating force. Or do they run on Biden's achievements? Look what he's done. He's passed such and such legislation and arguably has a very strong track record there. Or do they need to make a forward offer? This is my new vision for the future. This is what I see happening over the next four years. What, what do you think for the Democrat messaging? And then I'll just ask it out loud and let it hang in the air for you, Ryan. But the messaging for uh, Republicans, is it going to be economy, crime, immigration, or is it Biden's age? Let's talk about that. Is it gas prices? You know, what is it that the messaging? So I'll we'll start with you, Adisu, if you can, about Democratic messaging. So a couple things. I definitely think foundational part of Democratic messaging needs to be about Biden's accomplishments. Hmm. I don't think we can pretend like things are awesome <laughs> because they are not. And, uh, if we do that, we're not meeting people where they are. But I know this from research that we've done that I've been a part of and just from understanding politics that one of the biggest problems that President Biden has right now is people don't know what he's done. And I have been a part of trying to change that over the course of the last three years. It is getting increasingly difficult in this media environment, in this world, mass communicating with people. We just have a fractured environment. People are getting their media, some from social media, some from traditional media, some in an asynchronous way. News cycles are... 60 seconds sometimes and what's happening, we will have a concerted effort over the course of the next year to tell people, you know what, your insulin is $35. That's because Joe Biden helped do that. You know, your student loans got forgiven. That is because Joe Biden did that. The largest investment in climate uh, resilience in the, in the history of the United States, it's because Joe Biden did that. You, you might not know that, but we're going to tell you about that. I think that is absolutely foundational to not just to winning the election. But ultimately what it does is it reminds people why they elected him in the first place, which is to, I think Ryan's actually summarized it well, to like just be kind of a normie, <laughs> you know, sane, normal person after, you know, four years of chaos. To be clear, I do not think running as Trump as a threat to democracy really resonates with people. I think it resonates with some base Democrats and we will do 
and I think should do some of that work. But the economy is what people, you know, people care about their bottom lines. And especially the, I love that we're referencing the 100,000 now, like they're, these poor people are like sitting in Wisconsin and Arizona, like, sorry, we're coming after you. Um, you know, the, the, the swing voter that is ultimately going to decide this election are people who do not pay that close attention to politics. They're going to maybe check in late. Most of the information they get is going to be from friends, family, news, and paid media advertising that gets put forced in front of their face. And so, and the things they care about are the things that keep them up at night. I think you're absolutely, we agree hundred percent on that. And so I think democracy, while it, to me, an incredibly important issue, and ultimately I think like in some ways, the defining issue of this generation. It's not actually an issue that you run general election presidential messaging on. It is the economy stupid. James Carville said it 30 years ago. It's still true now. And so most of what we communicate about will be, this is what Joe Biden has you know, done for you. And I think on the negative or in the contrast, the Trump years weren't that awesome. <laughs> Here's some of the things you may remember from, you know, you may have forgotten from 2018, 2019, that uh, 2020, COVID, all these things that like you might need to be reminded of now that it's a little bit in your rearview mirror. There's another part of the question, but I'll stop there. So when Trump won in 2016, the Democrats said that he'd tank the economy and start World War Three. Well, here we are um, after three years of Joe Biden. Um, I think that the issues that drive voters are issues that hit them in their gut. And it has to be something that motivates a person to say, if I don't vote for this person, then the world and the country that I live in uh, is not going to be as good as it is today. Um, it's knowing why people are motivated. Politics is not as much broad strokes as you may think. It is knowing details about a person. It used to be that in a state like Wisconsin, where, say, hunting rights and, and, and if anyone's from the Midwest, you know, hunting's still a big deal. People want to be able to have a, have a, have a shotgun or, or a gun to go deer hunting. But it used to be that political parties would say, well, Let's go to the state and find out everyone that's taken out a hunting license and let's find out who has a sporting magazine. And we're going to send them a flyer that says, this person's going to take away your Second Amendment rights. And this person's going to stand up for your Second Amendment rights. Don't vote for this person. That messaging doesn't work. Nowadays, because of consumer data, because of the way that the, the things are collected on people, I know now the difference between a single mom who lives in Milwaukee with three kids. She doesn't care about the Second Amendment. She doesn't even care to read anything about the Second Amendment. But she wants to protect her kids. This fellow over here loves guns and he, he loves hunting. And so the message can't be the same. For him, it's this person could care less about the Constitution. He doesn't care about the Bill of Rights. In fact, he want, he could, he wants to rip up the Constitution and he wants to take away your gun. And if he gets elected and you're saying, Oh my God, I've got to go get out there. To you, I say, this person wants to take away your gun. It's going to put you in an unsafe situation. He's putting your kids' lives in danger. He doesn't care about 
any of these other, you know, no cash bail. We're not going to punish these criminals. Take a look around Milwaukee. And now he wants to take her. It's a fear message. So you have to understand that when we communicate to voters, it's because it, the question is talking about these big, broad strokes. Broad strokes are great as a talking point, but that's really not how we win elections. We win elections one person at a time, knowing everything about them, knowing what's in their head, so that when we're talking to them, we're motivating them in their head and in their heart. And that's how elections are won and lost. And what I'm suggesting to you is that the electorate is more angry today than they were in 2016. I don't have to convince you that. Aren't you tired of everyone hating each other? I am, but they do. And we get algorithms that will, that will push it. You have something that you're looking on your feed. You're going to get it 80 times and he, and I'm getting it 80 times and he's getting something else 80 times. And we're both getting 80 times more set in what we believe in. And we can't believe that we're on the same planet <laughs> because of all the stuff we're getting fed of, of division in the media and, but political parties have to understand all this and what they're doing is they're tapping into it to motivate those hundred thousand people. And can I just add one quick thing? Cause I did a study group today and one of my guests said something which I thought was pretty profound, which is that I think elections are going away from policy and even message to vibes. <laughs> Good word for the Gen Z crowd. But like, I actually think that is really true. I think it, and it goes to the heart head distinction. A lot of culture now is vibes, right? It's, it's, are you on my team or are you on the other team? Like, okay, well then I don't like you because uh, you're on the other team or can I get down with this person? Like, do they speak my language? Okay. Then I'm good with them regardless of what they may stand for or what even they, they may say. It's how they say it. And I actually think that that is increasingly becoming political communications. It's like just trying to identify with people as opposed to necessarily communicate a message directly with them. And probably bad for democracy, you know, writ large, but you know, we operate in the world of living in the world largely how it is. Like, and when the amount of attention sometimes you get is somebody scrolling through their phone, <laughs> you don't have time to communicate a message to them necessarily. You don't have time to tell them your policy position on Israel or whatever it might be. Like, you're just trying to get them quick. And the vibes sometimes are what do that as opposed to the substance. And good point about the vibes. And and you talked about democratic messaging and Republican messaging and what we're, I'm looking around the room and we can kind of sense how this. Tw- the 2024 election is going to shape up where you can kind of feel it emerging uh, from what they've been saying. And we talked about some unknowns. A lot will depend on what happens between now and the number of days that you know right up the top of your head. Uh, but who's counting? <laughs> I wanted to ask about one of those still unknowns. And then I, I want to pivot to your questions. But let me ask you this as my question for now, which is the House finally has a new speaker, Mike Johnson, my home state of Louisiana. And I wanted to ask you if you think we're likely to see the passage of aid for Israel and Ukraine, and will we avoid a government shutdown, which has not been good for Republicans in the past? And how do you think these issues are going to affect the 2024 outcome? Oh, you love the Congress stuff better than I. Yeah, not my, not my Congress. Yeah, Congress is not my. I think, I think that about the- I think that Speaker Johnson will send 
the Israel-only bill over to the Senate. The Senate wants both, and the Republicans generally want both in the Senate, both Ukraine and Israel. That bill will come back in conference, and I believe that there will be a Ukraine-Israel combo bill that passes both the House and the Senate. And there'll be some border money in there. And I think there's some border money in there. And even, yeah, I mean, the Democrats are, Biden is even coming around to that kind of thing. So that's, that is for sure. Shutdown, I, I think Speaker Johnson is going to get a pass on this. If I had to predict for you, they're going to kick it to December on a continuing resolution. That just means you spend at the same levels that you have been spending. That's a continuing resolution. They will kick the November deadline to just before Christmas. And or, or, which I think is more likely because Speaker Johnson is going to have one kind of pass on this from the Republicans, meaning our Republican speaker, if you're not following the details, we've just got a new speaker on the Republican side of the aisle. And one of the criticisms of McCarthy was that he was too soft on the CR and the omnibus bill there. So in other words, so Johnson's going to have one freebie here. I think he kicks that to March and you could see so do we of five months of March? Well, and which would make it even harder for Republicans yeah. because the closer we get to the election, the tougher that's going to be. So it's a catch twenty two. But I do think he's got to pass on this first CR one way or the other. I do think they'll get to omnibus in December or March. What was your next question? How does this impact the twenty twenty four? Well, it, it, it impacts the outcome. But but look, I mean, the Republicans embarrassed themselves enough on this speaker deal. I mean, honest to God, it was a, it was ridiculous. McCarthy should have never been in this. He never should have had this happen to him. And then it was an embarrassing two weeks after that. So I don't know how much more embarrassment there could be suffered through this. And I don't know if it's going to matter a whole lot more. I mean, how many people are really paying attention to this problem? We got you know everything else going bananas around the the country and the in in the world. I'm not so sure people care. I do think though when you shut down the government, it it it, it does hurt you. And we never win these shutting down the government battles. And it doesn't make sense to people that the greatest country in the world just shuts down because you can't operate in a in a factional government. I mean, the fact is, the Democrats won the Senate. We, we Republicans lost. Uh, Democrat runs the administration. We lost. And when you only control one half of one third of government, guess what? You can't win every battle. Good, good luck telling me that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's true, but uh, yeah, that's I, I agree 100% on the politics. I think this will be way, water way under the bridge by the time we get to next fall. Unless this keeps getting kicked down the road and we end up with a shutdown fight close to the election. Um, but I don't know. I was going to say I can't imagine that happening, but I actually can't imagine that happening. The Israel uh, and Gaza stuff certainly, you know, could probably will extend into 2024 and still be hovering in our you know political conversation. Probably not at the level of intensity it is right now, but it'll still be there just as Ukraine will be, et cetera. And I think Reince is right. Like, the state of the world matters in a presidential election. Foreign policy is maybe the biggest part of the job of being president. And so the question is just how out front is it versus vis-a-vis the economy, vis-a-vis social issues and other things that are happening in the world. And I don't know what it'll be, but I think 
Put it like this. I think it'll be more relevant than Speaker Johnson will be come next November. We hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. You talked about vibes. Let's check the vibe in the room. <laughs> and if anybody has a question to ask, Nicole Pompilio, the assistant director of the Center for Political Future, has a wireless mic. And Nicole, at your discretion, wherever you think. Hi. Thank you all for being here. I was in uh, Mr. Freeman's study group. I wanted to ask. Um, you still jam back. Yes, <laughs> I did. Great teacher. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask about. So I was listening to this podcast with Kevin McCarthy, who, and forgive me, I forgot the reason because it was a while ago that I listened to this, but yeah. he was basically saying that in the near future, because we are so divided as a country, most of the elections in the upcoming years are going to be these like half a point margins. They're really going to be uber, uber close. There's never really going to be a 40, you know, 40 state wipeout kind of like Reagan. But at the same time, a lot of things are not going great. Do you think that's possible? And do you think that trend, like, what are your thoughts on that? kind of trend um my thoughts are where we are today that's 100 percent accurate if you look at polling i reference wisconsin a lot because i know it inside and out and i I know what i'm telling you is true this only imagine a state and all the battleground states are similar you're going into an election it's a week before the election and it's 48 percent biden 48 percent trump and four percent undecided i mean it's it's unheard of And what that means is, through all the years of this political environment we've been living in, that almost every single person who's thinking about the election is dead set in what they're where they sit. And so, what's happening, and the reason you're seeing for the first couple years of Trump complete Republican control, then the Democrats went complete Democrat control. Then, if we you know, the Senate's probably going to Republicans the next thing just based on the maps and who's up for grabs. If Trump wins, it's going to be complete Republican control. And so how do you get this big swing back and forth? It's because the fulcrum is so narrow. And the amount of people that are making the decision is so small that when they shift just a little bit, everything shifts a lot. And that's what's happening right now in politics. I completely agree. I, I I will say, I think Biden and Trump, assuming they are, you know, we are having two straight Biden-Trump uh, presidential elections, and even Clinton-Trump in, in 2016, the opinions of those people, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, are so rigid and solid that I think it may be giving us a false sense, a three-cycle false sense of just how malleable the public is. Because I think in 2028, first of all, neither Biden nor Trump will be the nominee. I feel, I mean, 
if Trump loses and runs again and wins, like, I'm honestly, good silver than Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I guess it's possible. Well, like, I would, I would, I, I hope to God not. Um, I hope he doesn't win either. But uh, we're going to have two completely new people for the first time. And Hillary Clinton was not a completely new person, right? She'd been around for 30 years. Joe Biden was the vice president for eight years and has been around for 30 years. Donald Trump, new to politics, but definitely not new to the public, uh, you know, zeitgeist. I say all that to say I can actually see a much bigger fulcrum in 2028 and in future elections just because we're about to undergo kind of a generational shift. And I'm not sure who the like next Donald Trump or next Joe Biden or next Hillary Clinton is out there. I don't think the next generation of folks are just less well-known. And so that means there's more room to move people's opinion of those people. Trump and Biden, like they're pe- and Clinton people were just like, they knew what they thought. And so, and it just happened to be that pretty much 50, 50. And so we have this really small persuadable universe. So not sure it's permanent, but I completely agree with Ryan's that like this election and, you know, probably for the foreseeable future, we're, we're on a real small sliver of, of persuadables. That's a great question. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for both your thoughts and uh, yeah, uh, reflections. I have a question a little bit beyond the current, like the next cycle of elections. And I'm really, I think, uh, and this could uh, go back to the last question about this very tiny marginal difference. And maybe I think a part of it, or I think a part of it that both parties are just mirroring each other's problems in some way, like both of them have a candidate who is really old, right? It's just three years difference between Biden and, and Trump. It's just nothing. And uh, a part of talking about vibes that you mentioned, uh, the majority of the country feels that these two people are not speaking to the to the their language. So the vibe here also has a... It goes back to my training in comparative literature. The vibe here has a part of, of language, like what kind of language is to candidates are are using in, in some way. So I, I just want to ask you about this coming from a different place and different and different culture and different way of thinking about politics. I'm really wondering why until today in the US, there is a huge difficulty to think of uh, uh, like a third option, a third path. Like in Europe, for example, we have the Green Parties and the Green Parties offered different path uh, from the, the left and, and the right. So why it's very difficult in the American context to even imagine such a different person, different way of thinking? Uh, yeah, I'm really wondering about what, what do you think? <laughs> it's a real political science question. <laughs> I think it has to do with first-past-the-post elections, I mean, and the lack of proportional representation in our government. When winner takes all, you know, this is political science theory, it tends towards two options, right? Um, I don't think, for what it's worth, every 40 years or so in this country, 30 years in this country, we tend to have a third-party challenger emerge. (laughs) And we're at the 30-point mark now. So George Wallace of 1968 won states as a third-party candidate. Ross Perot in 1992 was leading the presidential race (laughs) in the summer of 1992. And now we're basically 30 years later. So we might, it, it might just be generational and cyclical that this happens and then, you know, things settle. But I think it ultimately is a political science question, which is if we change the rules to allow for proportional representation, we would get third parties. And as long as we have a first past the post system, winner take all congressional districts, single member congressional districts, all the things that exist in our political system, we are going to separate into two parties. And it's a thorough dynamics problem. It's like a physics problem. Politics, not actually about 
anything that's happening in the given moment. Yeah. Agree with you. Um, keep in mind, if you're not living this, when you talk about majorities, when, when you, when, when you have a majority in the house and representatives, you control everything. You control committee assignments, bills, where they go, uh, what bills get heard, what bills don't get heard. Everything is run by majorities. It's not a parliamentary system of coalition government. But that being said, I often say in, when I try to run when i was running the party and i say it today well sometimes when i have an opportunity on tv because we've got candidates in the republican party that don't like the rules they don't like the debate rules they don't like how delegates are awarded like you know what if you don't like the rules of the party go run in a different party you can go into the green party and go to the farm labor party and go to the democrat party independent party we get to set the rules is when you go run for the head of the uh the mock trial team or the the USC Rotary Club, who do you choose as the chair? A member of the Rotary Club. Because the Rotary Club gets to choose their own chairman, their own president. And the same is true with the party. Now, extending that, uh, the majorities write the rules for who gets the ballot access. So it, it runs very deep into um, how do I get on the ballot to run for president in Virginia? Well, let's go look at the statutes. Oh, guess what? The Republicans and Democrats wrote those too. (laughs) And everything from getting your name on the ballot to the nomination process to everything from getting on the debate stage is run by the Republican and Democrat Party. Now, you got a few oddballs like, you know, Bernie Sanders, a socialist, and I guess AOC is too, right? I don't know. I think she, I don't know. But there's a few out there. But your point is well taken. The problem is you can't get to majorities. You can't get all these state laws changed. And um, you can't get to 270 electoral votes. But so how so how are you going to get to 270? So if you have one independent that gets, you know, 20 electoral votes, well, you just let the House of Representatives going to pick the president. Well, who are they going to pick? Well, a Republican or a Democrat. So it's just, it's like a, a inertia. It's like a, it's just three-dimensional chess and Jenga all combined. <laughs> um, we have time for one more question, and then we're going to unfortunately have to wrap it up. My name's MD, and my question was, again, you mentioned that there's a lot of fear in this world, and um, with with what's going on in Israel and Palestine, like, especially from the younger generation, Biden has caught a lot of flack from how he's handling the situation in the first place by sending aid to both sides. Do you think that's something Trump will attack or, like, criticize? Like, I just want, like, predictions on how do you think Trump's going to handle that situation altogether? Well, that's a good question. I think think Trump's going to... Let's see. I think he will... On this one, I think he might sit back and just kind of wait and see what happens. I think hand Joe Biden more rope and yeah, yeah, I think that on this particular case, it's so tricky. Obviously, what happened on October seventh is unbearable, uh, and watching people getting killed—that you know, just just there—is terrible too. But I think in the case of politics. I think this is going to develop into public opinion is going to slowly 
make its mind up on where it's going to go. And, and everyone involved has to be very careful how they operate. I'm not suggesting that being timid is the right approach. I think timidity invites aggression as well. But I do think that being smart and careful and understanding how the world is watching this unfold is going to determine this outcome. Um, I think he's going to wait and see. I think he's going to hold back. Uh, and as you know, this entire issue is, is a landmine. Um, and it's in politically and with, with the aid and the money and where we are on our own economy and what we're spending or shouldn't be spending slowly, but surely no one's saying a lot yet, but slowly, but surely. These are the debates that are going to find its way creeping up in the mainstream media. Well, let me uh, pivot with that question and say, we talked about global conflict. We talked about fear, anxiety, terror in the world. Uh, we talked about death and landmines. Let's talk about not that. Let's talk about <laughs> what brings you hope in the political process as we conclude our evening and i'm hoping we can end on a something of something that you think like okay we're gonna be okay what gives you yeah. i do i mean first of all things like this right and i disagree on probably literally everything uh except for like maybe where we're gonna go get dinner after this but i do think and this is my broader answer that more debates and discussions than you think are happening like this in the world in the real world of politics both politics and government i think about cory booker who i worked for multiple times for his Senate campaign and his presidential campaign. And uh, Bill Bradley, who was a senator from New Jersey, was his mentor. And when he got elected, which was almost exactly 10 years ago today, 10 years ago yesterday, uh, when we went down to D.C., uh, Senator Bradley was like, your job when you first get there is to meet everybody, go out to dinner with all of them, and find common ground with them. And Corey was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I don't know if he actually made it through all 99 fellow senators, but he definitely did with several Republican senators and still has, he joined a Bible study with Jim Inhofe, who's the most Republican of Republicans from Oklahoma. Um, and I think he's, which he's still in now, 10 years later, he, he found things to co-sponsor with Mike Lee, who is, you know, a Republican senator from Utah. They have common ground on um, criminal justice reform issues. And I watched him, you know, over the course of his career in the Senate do that. And I'm like, and it happened a lot. <laughs> and I'm sitting here like, we see what happens in front of the cameras and the fact that Ryan, Ryan and I were talking about this before that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And that's true in news and in politics. But I actually, what gives me hope is that I actually know from my work in politics and from observing people like Corey and others that like these spaces are actually happening, even if you don't see them, even in the United States Senate. Even among Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell, probably, who, you know, have to negotiate, maybe not with <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. Uh, but even with Kevin McCarthy, I bet they were like, you know, when the doors were closed and the cameras were off <laughs> and nobody was listening, they probably could have like a respectable conversation and try to make things happen. So I do think it's not as bad as it looks. I think that's also a cautionary tale that it looks real bad. And how do we, yeah. you know, bridge that the uh, perception divide? But it does give me hope that there are people in government who are actually trying to make it work in a way that respects people's differences more than I think we might otherwise think. That's, I think that's a good point. 
One of the reasons why I like doing these kinds of events and why I agree to do them, um, knowing that I'm not usually the most popular figure on a university campus, um, <laughs> is that I want the kids and the students to see that you can have two folks up here that enjoy each other's company don't agree, have a little bit of an argument, spar a little bit, have some fun, and truly, it's normal. And I want you guys to see that. I think one of the things that I've noticed with students at different campuses is they really love talking about these issues. Students are actually very engaged on these issues, on the issues about what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in the schools, where we're but politics has become such a turnoff because it's gotten so nasty. And the problem is, is that the division is pure profit. Media makes money in dividing. Books are div- dividing. Podcasts are dividing. And if you can divide enough people to listen to your podcast and read your book, you can make money. Problem is unity is a loser. The split screen's the winner. This split screen arguing, like if we ratchet it up and do our three minutes on CNN, <laughs> that rates. Agreeing with each other doesn't rate. So I would love it if you all, as much as you, some of you may get sick of partisan politics, if you like politics, get involved in the college Democrats, get involved in the college Republicans, get involved in the party structure. If you don't like it, fix it. It's a lot of fun. You meet great kids, and I encourage you to do it. What gives me hope are things like this, but what also gives me hope is one little little story. And I wish I could spend time with you. I could really entertain you about some good stories from the White House. Honestly, it'd be thoroughly entertained. But the first time I left the White House, I came back a lot since. But when I left, which is another epic story, my last day in the White House. But when I left, <laughs> truly epic, <laughs> an entire chapter of a book, um, which I didn't do because I don't, I don't going to get paid to do a kiss and tell. But I left that night, and you've seen the White House a lot of you, at least either, either through pictures or in person. It's this unbelievable, inspiring White House that stands for opportunity, freedom, democracy, all the things that we love, and hope for in our country. And when I left, I was reminded that there's nothing on the outside that tells you what party and what president's on the inside. It's still that magical building that stands for all the great things that we love about our country. So whether you're a Republican or Democrat, this is this will endure, but only... If you're willing to get involved, not just debate esoterically, but truly get involved and make a difference. Because I'm, and we're both of us are evidence of two people that kind of just worked hard through the, through the, you know, through the fields of politics and ended up in pretty good places, but not because someone put us there. We had, you know, famous parents that, 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 that bought our way in. That's not how it happens. So I just encourage you to stay involved. And I'm really thankful to USC 
uh, and the Institute for having us. It's been a lot of fun. It's been fun. Well, on that note, I want to thank both Aditu uh, and Rights on all our behalves, not only for this insightful conversation about what may prove to be one of the most important elections in our lifetime, uh, but for their outstanding contributions to the Center for the Political Future and the wisdom you have brought to our students. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. I do want to thank all of you in our audience and invite you to join us on November 9th at 1230 on campus or on Zoom for our next event with Adam Nagorny, uh, who covers national politics for The New York Times and who has written an acclaimed new book titled The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. It may be the best book ever written about American journalism. Thank you, folks, and have a good night. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture. That's USCPOLFuture. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.